You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Well, good morning. So what do these stones mean? The Old Testament, the Hebrew children would oftentimes use stones and rocks to build altars to commemorate events and times when God was breaking through in their lives in a special way, when God's presence was felt, when God's hand was mighty and strong. It's not unlike maybe the way in which you and I tell stories or the way in which our families told stories about things and events and places and circumstances that happened before we were born. It's important to be able to know the stories. It's be able to important to know the stories of faith. And today it's my privilege to talk with you about two great stories. I'm going to talk about the story of the Israelites as they made it across the Jordan River. And I want to talk about some of the river crossings of the story of faith of Schweitzer United Methodist Church. And so as we do that today, hold the stone in your hand and think about your own life story. Think about the ways in which you have been touched by God, the ways in which other people have been used by God in your life. But think most of all about the times that God was real and present. And if God hadn't shown up, You just wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't be the person that you are. So the first story happens uh, over three millennium ago. The Israelites as a people, as a nation, have been in slavery for 430 years. And after that, they've journeyed in the wilderness for 40 years. So nearly 500 years The Israelite people as a nation have not been to the land, to the land that was promised them, the land that their great, 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 great granddaddy Abraham and their great, 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 great grandmama Sarah went to. They'd been gone for 470 years. Now, as a nation, as the United States of America was declared its independence in 1776, and we broke free in that end of that war in 1783. So it's been nearly 250 years since we as a people, as a nation, began to emerge. Multiply that times two, and you get the idea of how long the Israelite nation and the people of God had been in slavery, had been in captivity, and had been wandering around in the wilderness. So it's no small thing. It's no small thing that on the banks of the River Jordan, they encamp on that day for three days, waiting for the signal, waiting for God to say to them, it's time to cross the river. But the problem is, well, the river, (laughs) it's harvest season. The river is overflowing its banks. How are they going to get across the river? Well, 
That's when God showed up. As we read the story from Joshua chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. The Lord told Joshua, today I will begin to make you, excuse me, verse 5. Then Joshua told the people, purify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. Joshua doesn't say, I will do great wonders among you. Joshua doesn't say, you are going to do great wonders. Joshua says, the Lord will do great wonders among you. So in the morning, Joshua said to the priests, lift up the Ark of the Covenant and lead the people across the river. So they started out and went ahead of the people. Now, what in the world is this Ark of the Covenant? Well, it was a gold-plated wooden box. And in that box, in that chest, they had the Ten Commandments that had been inscribed with the finger of God. Some believe they had Aaron's rod, who was the first priest. And they had manna from the wilderness to remind them of the time that God had sent bread from heaven. In other words, they are taking and they're bringing forward some things in their faith tradition that they want to remember. Sometimes we think that faith is something that we need to reinvent from generation to generation. But there are some things in our faith, in our historic faith, in our traditional faith that we need to bring forward and take with us. Lest we forget who we are and whose we are. But what's most important about the Ark of the Covenant that is that it's the presence of God. It's oftentimes referred to as the ark of the presence. It was noted, it was felt, it was sensed that God was the one that was leading them across the river. We might bring a flag in front of us. They brought the presence of God. Well, let's read on. So the Lord told Joshua, today I will begin to make you a great leader in the eyes of all the Israelites. They will know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. Sometimes it takes a while for a leader to be recognized by the people. That day, Joshua, the new leader, could receive the baton from Moses, was beginning to be seen for the great leader that he was. Give this command to the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the banks of the Jordan River, take a few steps into the river and stop there. So Joshua told the Israelites, come and listen to what the Lord your God says. The priests will carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. As soon as their feet touch the water, the flow of the water will be cut off upstream, and the river will stand up like a wall. You know, there always comes a point in a time when somebody's got to step out 
Someone's got to step out in faith. Someone's got to do something silly and ridiculous unless God shows up. And the priests are called as the carriers of the Ark of the Covenant to step into the water. Sometimes we got to get our feet wet. So the people left their camp to cross the Jordan. And the priests who carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. It was harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests were carrying the Ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up at a great distance away at a town called Adam, which is near Zarephan. And the water below that point flowed on to the Dead Sea until the river was dried and then all the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. One of the things I love about the biblical story is that he wants us to know that this is about real people in real time, in real places, when God moved. It's not theorizing and it's not theologizing. It's real time, real events that actually really happened. Meanwhile, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood on the dry ground in the middle of the river bed just as the people passed by. They waited there until the whole nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. When all the people had crossed the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Now choose twelve men, one from each tribe, Tell them, take 12 stones from the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan. Carry them out and pile them up at the place where you will camp tonight. Choose 12 leaders. We can't have enough leaders. We can't have enough people who rise up among our families and our tribes and our heritage that will do what's called of them. The priests are leaders, but also are these 12 chosen among the people. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had chosen, one from each of the tribes of Israel. He told them, go into the middle of the Jordan in front of the ark of the Lord your God. Each of you must pick up one stone and carry it out on your shoulder, 12 stones in all, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. We will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them. They remind us that when the Jordan River stopped flowing within the ark of the Lord's covenant went across, these stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. What do these stones mean? What do they remind us of? Why was it important to remember? When the children of future generations will ask the question, what do these stones mean? The response was they will remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Covenant went across. You know, the carriers 
of the Ark of the Covenant were the priests. But they were simply carrying the presence. What is needed is the presence of God that's leading and guiding and moving in front of God's people. What do we learn from the lessons of this story? What's the highlights of story number one, the Hebrew questions? There are times when you camp out, but there's times when you got to get a move on. That God parts the waters as we follow God's direction and God's guidance. When we're willing to step out in faith, and that leaders are needed as carriers of the presence of God, godly people, and that leaders in the generations come and go. But Yahweh, the Lord, is the true leader. What do these stones mean? Uh, Think about your heritage. Think about your faith. Think about the people in your life, near or far away. Think about the times that God moved and parted waters for you and your family. Well, there's a second story that I want to talk about today, and that's the story of Schweitzer. I want to talk about a story that's happened just the past 70 years. I want to talk about some living stones. I want to talk about what do these stones mean. I'm going to name five or six stones this morning, but as I name these stones, I hope that they resonate with you in terms of your story here at Schweitzer. And if you're brand new to the church, you know, it's just the story of faith. So it's anyone's story, anytime, any place. First stone that I want to talk about today is the, is the story and the stone of vision. I love the proverb that says, without a vision, the people perish. It always takes vision. And so the story of Schweitzer began with a, a man by the name of B.E. Dillon, who uh, looked out from his porch and I'm going by the history of Don Mankin, Glendora, who wrote a fabulous story of the history of Schweitzer in 2001. B.E. Dillon looked out from his porch and he saw a pear orchard and he got a vision of a church standing in the midst of the orchard. I wonder, I wish we could talk to him this morning about what that vision looked like. And then as he stood out there and looked at that vision, he did something about it. He went to the widow of Mrs. John Schweitzer, and he had the audacity to ask Mrs. Schweitzer for an acre of land that she would give, and she did it. And there was a Fred Gilbert, who was also 65 years old, who was also a retired Methodist preacher, you got to look out for those 65-year-old retired Methodist preachers. I mean, it's amazing what God can do. And so Reverend Gilbert carried the concrete blocks so the builders could build the first building. 
And the first building was on Oak Grove Lane, 1951. There was a cross on the building that read, Jesus saves. 1951, Schweitzer was started. In 1957, there was property along Sunshine Street that was up for sale, the Schweitzer House. Bill O'Quinn, the senior pastor, came home and told his wife Janice, we've got to buy that place. And Janice asked, how are you going to get the money? And the next morning, he announced to her that we had to sell the old church, we had to sell the church to be able to buy that house. And so they sold the old Oak Grove building for $16,000 as a down payment for the $50,000 property. And in 1958, the first service and the church was moved there. Vision. In 1960, the new chapel was constructed. Vision. There's been all kinds of different vision that's happened throughout Schweitzer's history. Lots of different kind of building projects that we don't have time to get into this morning. In 1986, this sanctuary, this place, became a place of worship. Vision. In 1999, the gymnasium and the kids' building and wing was constructed with the vision of a grow-to-know preschool, which is absolutely flourishing today. Vision. In 2010, we moved our ministries to the Outreach Center, and we said in the middle of recession, we're going to be here for the community. Vision. Now, what do these stones mean? People were willing to follow the vision of God. But there's a second stone that's very much related to this, and it's the stone of sacrifice. People were willing to sacrifice money, time, energy, talent, ability, sacrifice. So part of Schweitzer's DNA is that the church has always been willing to pay the price for what we needed to do next. That's what these stones mean. Sacrifice. And so the church, if it had anything to do with kids, if it had anything to do with youth, if it had anything to do with outreach, and the community and worship. The church has always been ready and willing to sacrifice. Another living stone are pastors. You know, pastors are kind of important. Um, this church has been blessed with a, a host and, and diversity 
of pastors. But what strikes me when you look at the, the annals of Schweitzer's history is how God used, yes, uh, some old retired Methodist preachers to get it started. But oftentimes, God has sent us some very young leadership. Bill O'Quinn was just out of seminary in 1954 when he became the pastor here. Wes Arrington was just shy of his 40th birthday when he came here in 66. I was visiting with Wes this week. He's hospitalized. He's praying for us. Pray for him. Clayton Smith was a kid preacher when he came here at 30, 31 years of age. And Spencer Smith will come here at the ripe old age of 37. It's amazing how God oftentimes uses a new generation of leader to stimulate and move the church forward. One of the things that Swiger's been blessed is also with pastors is long-tenured pastors. Since 1954, there's been six senior pastors with an average tenure of 11 years. That lets us have an opportunity to shape and build and grow a culture and build trust. And so uh, what I want to do with you is uh, talk about three stones that I think are rather important during my tenure here. Things that uh, have happened that have helped shape the culture that uh, are part of what we are today. One is empowerment. I, uh, when I first got here, I did what I've always done wherever I've gone. I preached and taught Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. In the empowerment verse of Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, it says that we are called as leaders to equip God's people to do God's work, to grow in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son, coming to the unity and the maturity in the faith. Just leave those words up there a moment. So everywhere I've gone, 40 years ago when I first got out of seminary, I was appointed to four country churches. And I pulled those people together, and that's exactly what I taught them. I led sessions 40 years ago. Wish you would have been there. It was truly amazing. But when I came here, what I did with that was I, I led a lot of spiritual gifts classes. We had hundreds of people that go, went through spiritual gifts. There wasn't ex exactly something that was overly stimulating. It wasn't something that was, it was, it was heavy or a hard concept to follow. But what I did was I wanted to be able to teach and lead people of God, not the pastors, to really be equipped as spiritual leaders in the knowledge and the, and the personal knowledge of Jesus in leading people to maturity of faith. I went to a lot of different prayer retreats, and I led a lot of different prayer retreats because I believed in the power of prayer. Now, something that Susan and I brought to the church, I think it's important, essential. 
And I led a lot of different small groups. At one time, I led five small groups at one time, which is too many. But I wanted to build a culture. I wanted to, to assume the leadership of the senior pastor of this church to build and grow and empower other people to lead and do the ministry. And to do that, I had to kill some sacred cows. I killed two sacred cows that made me rather unpopular around here for a while. One sacred cow was that if you were in the hospital and the senior pastor did not visit you, you were not really visited by the church. And we had to decide whether the senior pastor was hired to be a chaplain and go to committee meeting after committee meeting after committee meeting. There were 19 different committees and 179 people that had to fill those spots. And so there were two sacred cows that I killed. It took me five years to do it. We got down to five committees. And I do visit the hospitals. I am there in a bereavement, but I'm not the primary person. So I learned two things. And I practiced two things. That God so loved the world, he didn't send a committee. <laughs> he sent us Jesus. And people were then released to go out and serve and lead and do things in ministry. And that sometimes sacred cows make good hamburger meat. Well, a second thing, a major crossing that happened in Springfield that happened at Schweitzer was in 2007. It was the event of the ice storm. Ed Hewlett was a great, compassionate leader with a lot of other people with him. But he was also prophetic. He built a disaster relief ministry, and he said, sometime, Bob, there's going to be a disaster, a natural disaster hit Springfield, Missouri. And it did. And Springfield was not ready for it. The Schweitzer. Schweitzer was ready. So we had 150 people in the gym certain nights during that ice storm. Ed and Bill and Bill were serving up so good biscuits and gravy they would not leave. But in the midst of that, with a Red Cross shelter, there was something that happened to us that we became known, that we we're a church for Springfield. And in 2009, after the Great Depression, the Great Recession hit, we, uh, we, in the midst of that, decided that we were going to give up the sacred cow of $66,000 a year on rent. And we were going to turn that into an outreach center for the community. And we we're going to unleash a food pantry and we were going to build a kid's wing, and we spent $2.3 million in the middle of a recession to pull it off. To me, that was Schweitzer's greatest moment in my tenure because the river was high 
And there were a lot of things that said, don't do it. But it made all the world of difference. And it changed us as a community. In 2012, under Jim Mason's leadership, we began to emerge significant ministries in Pittman School. And under the leadership of Jason Leininger, we created a lot of different transformation hub ministries where we're not just for Springfield, but we are with Springfield. We're with people. And we recognize that we cannot just do things for people and write the check, but we got to be in relationship with them. And we became a church to a church at the center. And through faith and finance, and through jobs for life, and through the neighborhood garden, and through the coach house, and through a various other type of ministries, we decided we're going to walk with people in the messy, nitty, gritty part of life. And that's who we are. Now, there's one final vision that I don't have time to talk with you about today. So what if I just say it in a minute and then y'all come back next week? (laughs) But in 2012, I took a sabbatical. And in that sabbatical, God said, my vision and my purpose for my remaining years was to raise up new voices. And so we began Uh, young adult groups in our home. I've had six of them. Because it was about the new voices and the next generation of people that God was raising up. And it's not just about pastors, but since that time, There's been Mark and Marcus, there's been Michael and Rhonda, there's been Jake and Krista, and now Jeff and Jane, who went on from Schweitzer, or here at Schweitzer to be pastors. And before then, there was Trevor and Matt, and Andy and Jim, and Jim and Lori, and Lucas, and a guy named Spencer who God raised up and went on into the ministry. But it's not just about the pastors. It's about people. It's about the next generation. It's about what God wants to do in this place. Because pastors come and go. But God is the leader. It's his presence. It's his glory. It's his power. What do these stones mean? (laughs) These stones mean everything. As we follow the cornerstone, Jesus Christ.